to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. So, this episode is going to be called Four Names. Could have very, very easily been given the title 13 Names. As, as I was mentally putting this show together, or at least the concept of what I wanted to do, there was a mass shooting in Allen, Texas. 33-year-old individual got out of his car, fully loaded with weapons, wearing tactical gear, wearing an insignia on the tactical gear that affiliated himself with a right-wing death squad. And you, if you've seen the letters RWDS, people that are affiliated with the alt-right, especially the militaristic organizations, terrorist organizations, they wear that. Man, he just got out of his car and started shooting people. Killed eight. Um, wounded seven. He was discharged from the army for mental reasons. Ironically, a police officer who also was a military veteran, just happened to be in the area. And he took him out before he could take out any more people. But he had already killed eight and wounded seven. So it very easily could have been 13 names. And the names of the victims are starting to come out now. One of them was a young man who was a security guard. And that's something that I've always tried to tell people. It doesn't matter if you're law enforcement or security. If you wear a uniform, you wear a badge, you're a target. And whether you're armed or unarmed, that's just something you have to keep in mind. It's not just a job. Not in this day. But that young man is not one of the four names. Now of the four names, three of them are black, one of them is white. Of the four names, two are men, two are women. Of the four names, three of them are under age of 40. One was over. Of the four names, three died of gun violence. One did not. 
And each one of those victims represents my life in a sense. In the fact that I lived and grew up in Chicago. I lived the majority of life in Mississippi. Currently live in Atlanta. And I'm a U.S. citizen. So each one of these names correlates with those four entities. Chicago, Mississippi, Atlanta, and the United States. Two of them, well, three of the four made national news. One of them, statewide news. But all of them had uh, hit me a certain way. Because life is precious. And in this day and age of disposability and limited attention span and pronounced narcissism, celebrated narcissism even, we forget the value of the other 8 billion people that exist around us. We figure, well, if they don't have a direct correlation with my life, they're not in my immediate circle, they're not somebody I've met, they're not important. But these people had families, these people had friends, these people had coworkers, these people were responsible for the most part, for lives. One was a pastor, one was a police officer, one was a public health official, and one was a homeless man. But the homeless man impacted many lives because he was an entertainer. And I'll get into that a little deeper. But I want to start with the first name. And what I plan on doing with this particular episode was to read the news story first. So for the first name, this is how the one of the news stories was written. A man who escaped from a Mississippi jail over the weekend may be connected to the killing of a pastor and stealing his pickup truck in Jackson, Mississippi, authorities said Tuesday. The pastor, 61-year-old Anthony Watts, was shot and killed Monday night around 7 p.m., on Interstate 55 after he pulled over to help a man who had wrecked a motorcycle. Police say that the man shot Watts several times and then stole his red Dodge Ram. 
Watts died at the scene. Based on information gathered from investigators, the suspect fit the description of 22-year-old Dylan Arrington, Jackson Police Chief James E. Davis said. Arrington is one of four prisoners, along with Casey Grayson, Corey Harrison, and Jerry Raines, who escaped Saturday night from the Raymond Detention Center, a facility near Jackson, through breaches in a cell and the roof. Hines County Sheriff Tyree Jones said the men might have been camped out on the roof before fleeing the facility and going their separate ways. Earlier Tuesday, the Hines County Sheriff's Office said in a statement that one of the escapees could be possibly responsible for this incident, but authorities could not confirm that and were still investigating. The Mississippi Bureau of Investigation confirmed to CBS News that it is assisting in this investigation. Four inmates were in custody for various felony charges, most involving theft. Arrington had charges of auto theft and illegal possession of a firearm, the Hines County Sheriff's Office said. Watch stolen red Dodge Ram, which has tan trim and cowboy stickers on the front and the back, was last seen heading south on I-55 in Terry, Mississippi, police said. Jones said one of the prisoners stole a Hines County Public Works vehicle that was later recovered in a suburb of Houston. Investigators also believe a stolen Chevy Silverado was connected to the escape. None of the men had been captured as of Tuesday afternoon. July, a federal judge ordered a rare takeover of the jail after he said deficiencies in supervision and staffing led to, quote-unquote, a stunning array of assaults as well as deaths. In December, the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals stayed that order after the county filed a motion for reconsideration. Late Tuesday night, the Leake Lee County Sheriff's Office posted a statement on Facebook urging residents to keep their doors locked and have no keys or weapons in your vehicles. Church members at St. Mary Missionary Baptist Church in Delo told CBS affiliate WJTV they're deeply saddened by the death of Watts. We are all in some sort of grief moment but we know that God has the upper hand. We cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for everything that we have to go through and we have to deal with even in this, said Reverend Carl Burton, associate pastor of St. Mary Missionary Baptist Church. Church member Vivian Ross told the station Reverend Watts was a person that loved everyone. He didn't meet no stranger. He would help you do anything he could for you. He just loved everyone. And we loved him. So the first name is Anthony Watts. A man of God from a little small town in Simpson County, Mississippi, called Delo. Delo got his name through the railroad expansion through the state. Very rural, very small area. So everybody knew everybody. And here was a brother who, following his conviction, following his calling, saw somebody that he thought needed help on the road. Unfortunately for him, it was somebody who didn't value life, at least other people's lives. 
how he got a weapon. I don't know if the motorcycle had a gun in its box or whatever, but somehow he got a hold of a weapon and he killed Reverend Watts. I'm sure Brother Watts never thought that his life would end that way. And he never thought that an act of kindness would be the thing that led to his death. But I do know from, and I didn't get a chance to interview anybody close to these these people I'm going to mention. I don't know any of these people personally. But there are some people that I know that knew them. And at least Reverend Watts for sure. And it's pretty obvious that he was a man who was serious about his work. And we lost somebody that was a contributor to society by the hands of someone who's given up of society. But somehow, some way, the person who had given up hope had the ability to get a weapon and take out somebody that was the epitome of hope. That's a reoccurring theme. That's a reoccurring theme as we talk about these four names. So the first name I'm lifting up is Reverend Anthony Watts. And I hope that his family, his friends, his congregation, and people that know him uh, are finding strength and comfort in this moment. The second name is Arena Preston. Here's the news story associated with her. A procession was held for a Chicago police officer killed after being shot on the city's south side Saturday morning. The officer identified as 24-year-old Arena Preston by the medical examiner's office was shot around 1.42 a.m. in the 8100 block of South Blackstone Avenue in the Avalon Park neighborhood. As CBS 2's Azal Rizii reported, and I apologize, I mispronounced his name, or her name even, Interim CPD Superintendent Eric Carter in a news conference confirmed that the officer of three years just completed her shift in the 5th District on the far south side and was heading home at the time of the shooting. Police aren't releasing a lot of information, but say their officers were checking out a report of shots fired when they found Preston. 
She'd been shot multiple times, just yards from her home. An arriving officer rendered aid, placed her into the back of a squad car, and took her to the University of Chicago Medical Center. After the desperate and ultimately unsuccessful attempt to save her life, a police source tells CBS2 she died from multiple gunshot wounds above the breast. Information surrounding what led to the shooting is unknown. Mayor Lori Lightfoot asked for her family and neighbors to be given privacy and allow them time to grieve. It's unfortunate that we are standing here again today to talk about another tragedy that has befallen one of our bravest citizens, Lightfoot said. I won't speak for the mother, but I can tell you that she poured everything she could into her child. The mayor and officers were fighting back tears as they gave details about what happened. Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson released a statement on the shooting. This is a profound tragedy and my heart breaks for the family of the young officer who was murdered early this morning on her way home from work. I'm outraged and devastated by this horrific violence against the public servant. And I will do everything I can to support her family and the Chicago Police Department through this traumatic time. Pray that her killer is apprehended quickly so that justice may be served. That a public servant was killed in the middle of the night underlines the fierce urgency of the public safety crisis in our city. My priority is building a better, stronger, safer Chicago where all our residents can live and work free from the threat of violence. Congressman Jonathan, Th Jonathan Jackson it's calling for people to extend prayers for the family of the officer and for justice in prosecuting the shooter. Can I continue to have our officers or anyone shot and killed, he said. We want the perpetrator or the suspects in this crime arrested and prosecuted. Loyola University of Chicago confirmed that Preston was set to graduate with a master's degree next week. The university released the following statement. Loyola University of Chicago confirms that police officer Arena Preston was scheduled to graduate on May 13th with a master's of jurisprudence from, the, from our school of law. Our university community is shocked and saddened by her tragic passing. She will be remembered by our faculty and classmates for her kindness, intellect, and commitment to servants. We wish to express our deepest condolences to the Preston family and to all those whose lives she's touched. Complete statement is forthcoming pending consultation with the Preston family. Hours after the shooting, police went door to door to see if neighborhood smart doorbells and surveillance cameras caught any video of shooters. Tina Wallace gave CBS two ring video of the officers searching her neighborhood. I was like, oh my God, that's the closest thing that says how the thing that happened since we've been here. I've been here 10 years and never had anything come around here. This neighborhood is safe, Wallace said. She said their block has an active neighborhood watch. She walks with Verley Brown, one of the residents who's been there the longest since 1965. I mean, it has come at 7-9th and Avalon and it's come at Ellis. It's come at Dorchester, but never this close to us, Brown said. They didn't know the woman killed, but they hope that there are more answers soon for her family and for the safety of the neighborhood. But my heart dies for them. I hated especially police officers, Brown said. 
I've been here since 1965. Nothing like this never happened this close to home. It frightened me. An investigator in the an investigation into the shooting is underway. An autopsy has been scheduled for Sunday. No arrests have been made. Arena Preston was of her generation. She was very active on social media. She had a very popular post on Instagram. So naturally, a lot of people are shocked. A lot of people are hurt. And she was an embodiment of hope. Reports that I've been able to hear from her co-workers been nothing but complimentary. Uh, they said she was always a positive presence at her precinct in Avalon. And she was going places. She had a plan. You just don't see a lot of people who are in law enforcement pursue higher degrees without a plan. Maybe she was planning to be a lawyer. Maybe she was planning to be an administrator within the police department. But we'll never know because someone or some persons took that hope away. Some persons who don't understand hope or who have lost hope and are only living for a moment to rob her or just to target her would have no clue because nobody's been arrested. And so somebody that seemed to be in a position to contribute to the community, to be an asset, was taken away. In an era where we need more police officers who have a positive mindset, who have a community-oriented mindset, who actually lives in the community that they protect. For this system to be taken away is a tragedy, not just for the city of Chicago, but for the world, because who knows what she would have contributed further. Just listening to those two names, Anthony Watts and Arena Preston, I hope you kind of see where I'm going, but I'm not finished. We live in a world now where hope is being diminished. 
and it's being diminished in dramatic fashion. When we talk about gun violence in the United States, it is a unique phenomenon to us. Yes, there are other countries that have recorded a gun death, but not with the frequency and not with the, dare I say, zealousness that we have here. And probably the most quoted, <laughs> the most acknowledged amendment to the United States Constitution is the Second Amendment, which is frightening because the First Amendment is the most important in defining us from other nations. The freedom to speak, the freedom to assemble, the freedom to worship however we please or even not to worship however we please. The freedom to even protest our government. That was the first one. And that used to be probably the most popular one until now. Now we're more obsessed with making sure that we have guns. There are more guns in the United States than we have people. Not more cars, not more toasters, not more TVs. Well, probably more TVs. But definitely more guns. And that says a lot because in Mississippi, Mr. Watts lives in a state where he lived in a state where everything is being done to make sure that there are no restrictions on gun ownership. In Chicago, in Illinois, the government is doing everything within their power to restrict gun ownership within the confines of the Second Amendment. However, their neighbor to the east, Indiana, has the same mentality as Mississippi, so you can get guns readily. And then, of course, I-55 via I-57 it's a direct pipeline to Chicago from Mississippi. So you can get guns into the state of Illinois easy. East or south. So no matter how restrictive the laws are, in Illinois, if other states don't mimic that, or there's no federal restriction, then the proliferation of gun violence, even in states as restrictive as Illinois, will continue. So, at this point, we want to lift up the name of Arena Preston. 
and and you know, having been in law enforcement and having good friends who have made careers in law enforcement and even in the city of Chicago, even having a dad that was a police officer in what was the worst police district in America at the time. You understand the risk going in. And for those friends of mine who've made it through, who have successfully retired, who, you know, we never really talked about in detail, but I'm sure they had their close calls. But they made it. But this 24-year-old sister had so much going for her did not. And she didn't die in the line of duty. She died basically at home. She had worked her shift. She was going home to relax, thinking about the next day, thinking about next the next week as she was getting ready to graduate with a master's degree. And just before she could get to that sanctuary, her life was taken. So we want to lift up Sister Preston, her family, her friends, her coworkers, all those people that she impacted. And um, we send our condolences to her and her family. So, on the other half, we'll get to the other two names. Catch you on the other side. And so we're back. The third name is Amy St. Pierre. This is a new story connected to her death. Loved ones of a woman killed after a gunman opened fire in an Atlanta doctor's office Wednesday are remembering her as a dedicated mother and friend who was passionate about progressive causes. Amy St. Pierre, 38, was an employee of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Spokesperson Benjamin N. Haynes told Axios that St. Pierre was a public health analyst working on maternal health in the agency's Division of Reproductive Health. She graduated in 2003 from Blessed Trinity Catholic High School in Roswell, according to the school alumni Facebook page. 
Amelia Trace Lerner, who met St. Pierre at a breastfeeding support group and became so close that they shared calendars, called the mother to a quick-witted, life-loving, level-headed friend who enjoyed talking about books, kids, and the world. Before her death, St. Pierre, a passionate activist who recently protested against Atlanta's Public Safety Training Center with her children, was focusing on maternal mortality issues, Lerner told Axios. She was curious and smart, and one of those capable friends you have who always seem to know a little more, to be better tuned in, to be able to accomplish more with the same hours, she said. I keep thinking she's someone I would be writing to today, talking about how this was too close to home and who we were calling, where we would march, and where to donate. She showed that being driven, adventurous, and career-minded was in no way antithetical to being a great friend, partner, sister, daughter, and mom. Rob Royal, a friend and former roommate who was adopted into our high school friend group and fostered an overweight pug with her, told Axios. Amy made an indelible impression on my life, and I'm absolutely heartbroken for her and her family. Meanwhile, four other women remain in the hospital, three in the ICU after the shooting. Dr. Robert Jansen, chief medical officer at Grady Health Center, said Thursday. The accused gunman, 24-year-old Dion Dwayne Patterson, waived his first court appearance Thursday morning. He's charged with the murder of St. Pierre and four counts of aggravated assault against the other victims. Jansen told reporters that two of the women in ICU had to go back to the operating room for additional procedures. And the third woman in the ICU was expected to be moved out of that unit Thursday. This is, unfortunately, a fairly routine thing after these types of injuries, he said. You can't do everything the first operation. He also said he had an opportunity to speak with two of the shooting victims. They have been traumatized, he said. They are very grateful for the support and care they received. They realize that this is a horrific event and the fact that they were in a healthcare facility makes it worse, but they were really grateful. What happened? Atlanta police say Patterson opened fire just after noon in the waiting room on the 11th floor of Northside Medical Midtown building at 1100 West Peachtree Street. Patterson, who police said was at the office for an appointment, allegedly stole an idling vehicle outside a nearby gas station and fled the area of the Cobb County. Witnesses told the Atlanta General Constitution they found Patterson at a pool in the Waterford Place condominiums near the Battery, Atlanta. Police announced just before 8 p.m. Wednesday that he had been captured. Of note, the AJC also reports that the Federal Department of Veterans Affairs will investigate the mental health treatment of Patterson, who served in the U.S. Coast Guard, received from the agency. So, Amy St. Pierre was not only a public servant working for the Center of Disease Control here in Atlanta, but she was a community-minded person. She was an activist. 
She marched. She voted. She protested. She was engaged. She was involved. And her life was randomly taken away from a brother that had no hope. His brother came, this brother came with his mom. To the facility. I think she had an appointment as well. He was on anti-anxiety medication, which, according to experts, is addictive. He asked for medication ahead of his scheduled refill. They denied him access to the drug. And somehow, some way, he pulls out a weapon and starts randomly shooting people, killing Amy St. Pierre in the process. He didn't know any of these people. The only thing he knew was that he had no hope. And the only thing he could do was try to feed the pain he was feeling. But yet he had access to a gun. And in the state of Georgia, that's not surprising. The Georgia state legislature just passed legislation literally last month and last session the year before to make it easier for people to get guns. They don't have a red flag law here. If they do, they don't enforce it because this brother obviously had mental health issues. He was taking anti-anxiety medication and yet he had a weapon and he used it. And I would say indiscriminately, but he didn't shoot his mom. Maybe she was already in her appointment. Maybe not. But he didn't kill her. Unfortunately, as he was on the run, he didn't kill anybody else. And, you know, these facilities don't have metal detectors. 
They have security. Some even have police. But, you know, they're not scanning people. They probably will now. I'm sure they're having that discussion if they haven't had it already. You know, there are signs that say that firearms are not permitted, but there's nobody checking to see if they actually do have them. And there's no telling how many people were walking around that day with a weapon. But here was a lady. We don't know. It still hasn't been made clear whether she was there on business or she was there to see the doctor herself. But somebody who was contributing to society, somebody who was working to make society better. She was working on ending the maternal maternal mortality rates. Not just here in Georgia, but nationally, if she's working for the CDC. She was engaged in that work. And especially now in a climate where we have elected officials basically forcing women to have children, in a lot of the states where they're doing that, the maternal mortality rates are higher than the national average. And the maternal mortality rates in the United States is higher than the majority of the countries on the planet. And this is supposed to be the greatest country in the world. And yet somebody who was working to solve that problem was eradicated, was killed by the other health problem we have. Gun violence. Gun violence is a health problem, both physical and mental. We get that. But to the politicians who use the mental health angle as their excuse not to restrict gun use or gun ownership or whatever, vote for policies that would increase funding dealing with mental health. Don't look at your state budgets and cut your departments of mental health. Stop doing that. If anything, start putting more into it. Take some of the money out of corrections and put it into mental health. Because what has happened is that because you've taken money from mental health and put it all in corrections, guess where people that have mental health issues end up? Either in county jails or state prisons. 
or in some cases, they're showing up at hospitals, randomly killing people because they can't get the medication they desire. Again, somebody that epitomized hope was taken out by somebody who had none. So, we want to lift up the name of Amy St. Peter. And hope that her family, her friends, especially her two children, are given the strength and comfort they need. And her colleagues to carry on the work. The fourth name. Jordan Neely. Now, many of you who watch the news on a regular basis have heard this name. Jordan Neely was the homeless man who was killed on the subway in New York City. This is the story I pulled. Before Jordan Neely was killed on a New York City subway car this week, he was known for his swift Michael Jackson dance moves that entertained many. Yet he struggled with the trauma his mother's murder had left him with at an early age. He told me how much his mother's passing impacted him. He disclosed that she was murdered and her body was put in a suitcase. Moses Harper, an artist who knew Neely, told CNN. Harper and Neely became friends quickly after they met in 2009. When she took him under her wing, Neely opened up to her about how hard it was losing his mother as a young teenager. It traumatized him. He was not expecting that, the brutal way she was taken. They had a big impact on him. The brutality behind that, that traumatized him, Harper told CNN. The kid has cried in front of me. That hurt him in his heart. On Monday afternoon, Neely was killed after being held in a chokehold by a Marine veteran on a subway after Neely got on the train and shouted at passengers that he was hungry, thirsty, and fed up with having nothing. A witness told CNN Neely, who was experiencing homelessness, according to a source familiar with his case, did not harm anyone, nor did they see him armed with any weapon. An attorney for the veteran on Friday identified him as Daniel Penny, 24. Daniel never intended to harm Mr. Neely and could not have foreseen his untimely death, the law firm of Razor and Kenneth PC said in a statement. We hope that out of this awful tragedy will come a new commitment by our elected officials to address the mental health crisis on our streets and subways. A law enforcement source also confirmed the identity to CNN. 
The 30-year-old's death was ruled a homicide, but it does not mean there was intent or culpability, which is a matter for the criminal justice system to consider. A spokesperson for the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner said. The last time Harper saw Neely was in 2016 when she bumped into him on the subway and and saw he was experiencing homelessness when he asked passengers for food. I had never seen him like that before, she said. Harper described Neely as the kind and sweet souls that people from around the world had been reaching out to her about his death. It's crushing people. Members of our circle are texting me. They're just finding out and they're crying. They don't know what to think, Harper said. The Manhattan District Office District Attorney's Office is investigating Neely's death, which has triggered protests in New York City demanding justice in the case, in which no charges have been filed days after the killing. As part of our rigorous ongoing investigation, we will review the medical examiner's report, assess all available video and footage, photo footage, identify and interview as many witnesses as possible, and obtain additional medical records. Manhattan District Attorney Office spokesperson Doug Cohen said in a statement, Prosecutors are expected to continue discussions on the investigation through the weekend, reviewing evidence and witness statements, law enforcement source told CNN. Four passengers who were in the train car have been interviewed by police, but authorities are still seeking to speak with several others. The Marine veteran who held Neely in a chokehold, meanwhile, has hired a former Republican Manhattan District Attorney candidate to represent him, the attorney's law firm confirmed on Friday. Attorney Thomas Kenneth, who ran against now Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg in 2021, is an Iraq war veteran and major in the Army National Guard, whose bid for DA focused on reducing crime and opposing criminal justice reform. Neely's family has retained a law firm of Mills and Edwards LLP to represent them. Passengers are not supposed to die on the floor of subways, Attorney Lennon Edwards said in a statement, adding that Neely had to wait too long to go without help, intervention, and without air. Attorney Dante Mills said, we have people being killed for ringing the wrong doorbell, pulling in the wrong driveway, and screaming out in desperation on the subway. We cannot let that stand. In the minutes leading up to the deadly chokehold, Neely had been acting erratically, but he did not attack anyone on the train, according to Juan Alberto Vasquez, a witness who recorded the altercation on video. As soon as Neely got on the train, he started yelling about being fed up and hungry and tired of having nothing, Vasquez told CNN. Before he was killed, Neely said, I don't care if I die. I don't care if I go to jail. I don't have any food. I'm done, according to Vasquez. At some point, Neely took off his coat and threw it on the train's floor, repeating he was ready to go to jail and get a life sentence, Vasquez said. As the yelling continued, many passengers became visibly uncomfortable and moved to other parts of the train car. Neely did not appear to be armed or looking to attack anyone, Vasquez told CNN. Then a rider came up behind Neely and put him in a chokehold with the two eventually falling on the floor, said Vasquez. Neely did not interact with that passenger at all prior to the attack, Vasquez continued. In the video recorded by Vasquez, Neely and the other man are seen on the floor of the subway car with the man's arm wrapped around Neely's neck. Two men were on the floor for about seven minutes, Vasquez said, adding he started recording about three or four minutes after the chokehold began.
At some point, two other passengers approached Neely and the man holding him down. One appeared to be mediating the situation while the other seemed to help the man restrain Neely, according to Vasquez. After a while, Vasquez noticed Neely stopped moving and talking, he said. When police officers arrived at the subway station in lower Manhattan before 2.30 p.m. Monday, they administered first aid to an unconscious Neely. He was taken to a hospital where he was pronounced dead later in the afternoon, according to a law enforcement source and an NYPD spokesperson. CNN has not been able to independently confirm what happened leading up to the incident or how long Neely was restrained. Neely lost his mother in 2007 when she was killed by a boyfriend in a northern New Jersey residence. The man was sentenced to 30 years behind bars for Christy Neely's murder at their home and dumping her body in a suitcase in the Bronx, according to the Jersey Journal. In the years after, Neely began experiencing some hard times before high school ended. Melissa Vada, a high school friend of Neely, said. He was jumping from house to house, she told CNN. Through it all, Neely was always a dancer who was a really good kid, she said. He's very well known on the Internet, Vada said. Internationally, people have reached, have reached out to me looking for him. Neely also had a series of run-ins with New York police. A law enforcement source told CNN's John Miller, including 42 arrests on charges, including petty larceny, jumping subway turnstiles, theft, and three unprovoked assaults on women in the subway between 2019 and 2021. Andre Zachary, Neely's father, noted the painful parallel in his son being killed like his mother, the New York Daily News reported. And although he hadn't seen his son in four years, he praised how well Neely impersonated Michael Jackson. I sat in front of the TV and showed him the Jackson 5. He took on the Michael Jackson thing and he really formed it very well, Zachary told the newspaper. As of Thursday evening, no charges have been filed in Neely's killing, a move which has increased demands by officials in the community for legal action. Penny was early identified as a 24-year-old from Queens who served in the Marines, according to law enforcement military records. He was a sergeant and served from 2017 to 2021, and his last duty assignment was at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, military record show. Detectives interviewed and released him, a law enforcement source told CNN. New York Governor Katie Hochul said Neely's family deserves justice. I do want to acknowledge how horrific it was to view a video of Jordan Neely being killed for being a passenger on the subway trains, Hochul said. Thursday during a news conference. There had to be consequences, and so we'll see how this all unfolds. But his family deserves justice. The governor added Neely was held down until the last breath was snuffed out of him, describing the passenger's response as very extreme. Jermaine Williams, New York City's public advocate, echoed the governor's call for justice, demanding charges be filed immediately against Penny. Public Advocate Office helps with complaints involving government-related services and regulations. To say anything else is an equivocation that would only further a narrative that devalues the life of a black homeless man with mental health challenges and encourages an attitude of dehumanization of New Yorkers in greatest need, he said. On Friday, Williams told CNN charges have not been filed because the victim was homeless, and the mayor and other elected officials have not condemned what Williams described as an act of vigilantism.
or vigilantism. I'm concerned our executives are creating an environment where these things can continue, he said. I do want to make clear that you can say vigilantism shouldn't be happening while saying you're not sure what happened, Williams added. But of those things, both of those things can happen at the same time, and we need to hear that. Williams added, what if it was the black homeless man who had choked to death a white Marine because he was scared? We'd probably be having this conversation with him with charges sitting on Rikers Island. So the fourth name, again, is Jordan Neely. And the situation is reversed here. I don't know Daniel Perry. Never met him. Assumed up until this point, he had served in the United States Marine Corps with distinction. He had obtained the rank of sergeant. So that's what would lead me to that conclusion. He had everything in his life to live for, and he still may. But he took away the last bit of hope that a young black homeless man had his very life. Jordan Neely was a young man who was obviously tormented, who was suffering from a unique form of PTSD, one that can only be described as an American phenomenon. His mom was murdered. And put in a suitcase. can't even imagine the trauma that this brother has gone through and obviously never recovered and never got the help that he needed to get through it. Doesn't say if he was in the foster care system or not, but if they said he was going from home to home, that's what would kind of indicate he was. And based on the comments of his dad, really wasn't his dad wasn't really a part of his life anyway except when he got older so his brother was homeless and the only thing that he had was his ability to dance and he utilized that ability to maintain because he performed on the subways. People gave him money. And if you saw any of the videos, I mean, it wasn't just some dude and, you know, whatever, borrowed clothes, you know, out there performing. I mean, he was putting on shows. He had the members-only jacket from, I guess forget what video that was from Michael Jackson Thriller maybe uh, you know he would put on the outfits to look like Michael Jackson 
He literally was entertaining people commuting on the subway every day. That was his therapy. But on this particular day, he had lost hope. And in some macabre fashion, Daniel Perry's act of vigilantism relieved Jordan Perry's pain. Jordan Neely's pain. Relieved Jordan Neely's pain. And that's a sad commentary. But it also highlights the fact that in the United States of America, we have a lot of things that we need to fix. The other three names I mentioned were victims of gun violence as well as the people in Allen, Texas. And there was a mass shooting in Mississippi and there was a mass shooting. Well, it seems like there's a mass shooting everywhere now. But in the Mississippi, it was a Cinco de Mayo party that went south. But in this case, there were no guns involved but mental health was an issue. And do not be surprised if Daniel Perry's mental health doesn't come into the forefront. He didn't really see any action based on the time they say he served. But in order to try to get him off a murder charge, which looks like will probably happen, it'll come into play. But mental health is not about a defense. Mental health awareness is about getting people the help that they need. If there's no resources from the federal government to do that, then you're going to see more instances. Because to be honest, it's a subject that's not talked about. But homeless people are attacked on a daily basis all throughout this country. Violently attacked. Because people figure nobody cares about them. And people that have dehumanized other human beings and and don't have value of other people's lives prey upon homeless people. And that's, that's a scary proposition. It's bad enough to think that you, that you don't have a home. You literally are living out of your car or living and that's a luxury uh, where you're living 
under a viaduct, a bridge overpass, in a park. In Atlanta, people living on off-ramps on interstates and on railroad tracks. In D.C., there's no public park you can go to without seeing hundreds of homeless people. If there's a church that has that serves food, the alley next to the church is lined with homeless people. Popular gathering spot in Jackson was like the bus stations or even the post office. And it was so bad that it was a particular corner right there on Capitol Street where they would drop off homeless people. And it got so bad that somebody decided, well, we'll just build a shelter there since they're dropping them off there. And if you've listened to podcasts, you've heard me tell that story. No matter what the intent of Daniel Perry, Jordan Neely's life shouldn't have been taken away. And to the to the man who tried to intervene and stop it, God bless you. I'm sorry it didn't work out the way you wanted it to, but at least you tried. And Mr. Vasquez were recording it. People say, well, you know, he should have intervened. He was intervening. He recorded it. People look at that. They say, well, you know, instead of picking up their cameras, they should they should go and try to stop it. If it wasn't for that young girl videotaping, what if she decided to drop the phone and tried to jump in. She might have been dead too, along with George Floyd. But because she videotaped it, justice was served. So don't always look at people in in a negative, selfish light for recording what's happening out here. It's the reason why we know this brutality by bad police officers. This is why we know about how people are going in and killing people, whether it's with a gun or with a chokehold, a knee to the neck. It's being videotaped. And it would seem at some point in human existence that knowing that everybody can be a cameraman at any given moment that people would check their behavior. But they don't. So videotaping is intervention because they're recording it. They wouldn't have caught the guy in Atlanta if it wasn't for cameras. Now, relaying the information in a timely fashion, that's a whole other concept, but at least they 
were able to find them based on following the trail of surveillance cameras and maybe some other footage that they haven't revealed yet. So don't look at people that record these things as cowards or somehow trying to get social media hits or likes or whatever. It's real-time journalism, to be honest. So, but Jordan Neely's a tragic story in the sense that had his brother gotten the help that he needed when he needed it, right after his mom was murdered, he probably wouldn't be on that subway saying that he had no hope saying he didn't care if he lived or died, saying that he was fed up. He probably would have been on the subway being entertained by somebody else performing in the subway. He may have been the one to stop a Daniel Perry from choking another homeless person. But instead, because we, as a society, dropped the ball, he's a victim. And we have to be accountable for that. So, when I talk about Anthony Watts and a Rena Preston and Amy St. Pierre. We talk about how hope was taken away from them at that moment that they died. With Jordan Perry, his hope was taken away when his mom died. And we did nothing. Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely's hope was taken away when his mom died. And we're responsible for that. Whether we like it or not. So to the friends to the people who knew Jordan Neely we send our condolences. We pray that justice is served that there's some level of accountability for his life being taken away and we hope that a discussion is held 
and action is taken to deal with homelessness and mental health in this country. And the ironic thing is, is that the young Marine, many of his colleagues, many federal veterans, are in the same position as Jordan Neely. They're homeless. They have mental health issues. And they're not being adequately treated. How much trauma would that young man have had if he realized that the person he had choked out was a veteran? Let alone a young man who lost his mom by gun violence. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you understand the essence of this podcast. I did not know any of these people. Never met them. Never will have the chance to meet them. But their stories, and I and I wouldn't have known their stories other than through a tragedy. But I hope it it gives you some sense of awareness about the people that live amongst you that you may see while riding a bus or commuting in your car or you bump into at a concert, at a sporting event or even coworkers that you may see but you don't interact with. Just understand even though it doesn't directly impact your life the fact that they are here serves in a capacity you'll never meet the person that makes your clothes or your shoes but you have them because of their work you'll probably never meet the people who mow the grass at the golf course you play at or clean the basketball court at the gym or even at the park. You'll probably never interact with the kids that serve you your food at these fast food restaurants. But they exist. And, and we have to value human life. I think we could nip all this in the bud. Mental health, uh, maternal mortality rates, gun violence. We could nip this all in the bud if we just start valuing human life again. We could end white supremacy in the United States if we value human life again. Or maybe I shouldn't say again, just now. Just start valuing human life now. 
so that when your story is told, it's not because of a tragedy, it's because you lived a good life. We all have to succumb, succumb to mortality at some point. But we should be able to live a long, fruitful life and be allowed to contribute to it in a positive way. And I think that if we really make the effort to value human life, that can happen for the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of us. Again, my time, my mission was limited to four names. There's thousands of others, unfortunately that have met tragic ends that could have been prevented. If we didn't devalue human life. I forget the name of the guy. He used to say it at the end of his show. But you say, take care of one another. Until next time.